Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller. And I, I mean, I know it's only been a week, but uh, but you look great, and I've missed you. And I'm glad that you've come back for more, because this is another great episode with friend of the show, Stephen Toblowski. Now, he has consistently appeared on every season of the show, amazing, amazing human being, always a wonderful person to talk to, and consistently now he has picked classic Hollywood films. And of course, you know, today is no different because we're talking about Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And if the name sounds familiar to you, I totally get it. And if you're a millennial like myself, then you are probably familiar with the work of a one Mr. Adam Sandler, uh, who did a movie a while back called Mr. Deeds, uh, co-starring Winona Ryder, and of course the usual cast of characters. Uh, Well, this is the movie, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, is the foundation work for Mr. Deeds with Adam Sandler. And so if you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it before you start uh, listening to this episode, because, of course, a lot of the themes are very similar, but Mr. Deeds Goes to Town is is classic, it's funny, and just overall a wonderful time on these, you know, upcoming fall evenings. So, happy first day of October, first and foremost, and I will stop talking now so that you can get into this classic Hollywood really funny, wonderful interview that I had. So without further ado, my conversation with Steve Toblowski about his favorite film, or one of them, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Enjoy! Scopophilia, it's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And I'm so excited, as always, because we have an old friend on the show today, Stephen Toblowski. Hi, welcome back. How are you today? I'm doing good, Rebecca. I just finished a long stint of babysitting. A long stint. <laughs> I, I'm a grandfather. That's yes. one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that I've become a grandfather. And, and how's that treating you? Well, I got to say, I'm glad I did my aerobics in my 40s (laughs) because this baby, when you're a father, Mm -hmm. you're so scared all the time for your child (laughs) that you don't really note how rapidly human beings develop. But when you're a grandfather, you don't give a damn. Because as soon as that baby gets out of hand, you just take them back to mom and dad, saying like, okay, she's been great. It's, she's all yours now. Right. And, but we're able to, my wife and I were able to see the enormous changes that this baby in particular make, how rapidly it happens. She went, and, and those of you out there who are parents and grandparents will realize that this is not of 
aw shucks moment, but a moment of true terror <laughs> that in one week, uh, she learned to run and she learned to open doors. Oh. All in one week. <laughs> one week, she went from walking like toddling to running and opening doors. So now <laughs> we we are running around, and she just two days ago learned to turn on the gas of the oven. Oh, no. So I don't know what it is about children that they learn the things that are so deadly, and, and you know, they just think it's fun. But right. the— She's been the chief joy of the pandemic. She's been really uh, amazing, amazing, wonderful in terms of the pandemic. And she's even better than Queen's Gambit. You know, <laughs> wow, that's she high beats, praise. <laughs> she beats Queen's Gambit, which I must say, uh, besides it being just a very compelling story in so many odd, odd ways, it's one of the best produced mm. uh pieces of work I've seen in a long, long time, because a lot of times when people go for period or things like that, they hit a few high notes and they skimp on a lot of things. But this yeah. really went for the nuts and bolts of everything being period, and it really captivated me. But anyway, <laughs> that those have been the two high points of the pandemic, that and what what you you mentioned, you you contacted me a little while ago and said, "Is there another movie you want to do?" Yeah, and I happened to pick this one. Yes, uh, you did. This one that we're about to discuss, which is, uh, I had a remarkable sort of history with this movie, and I don't know if I discussed this with you, but it's really unique uh, mm. in terms. I don't think there's any other movie that I had this kind of history with. Okay. And do you, do you do a drum roll or anything when you announce what movie we're doing? I mean, not usually, but it sounds like you you may need one for You may need one. You may need one for this one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Deeds goes to town, the Frank Capra version from what is it? 1933, 34? 36. 36, 1936. Yes. Uh, Mr. Deeds goes to town. Uh Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur. So this is my strange history with this classic, classic film. When I was a little boy growing up in Oak Cliff, we had four TV stations, the three <laughs> regular ones in Channel 11, which showed the Three Stooges, Mickey Mud Turtle and Amanda Possum show. <laughs> and to fill up time, to fill up space in the afternoon, they would run a classic film, which I guess they got for no money, uh -huh. five days a week. So they ran this movie called Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Five days. Then the next week, they would have uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh -huh. and, and I'm thinking like, boy, this must be something that they show the same TV show, and these shows are so <laughs> long. So I sat down to watch Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and I don't think it was on the Monday. But it was on Tuesday or Wednesday, and I was transported. I was enraptured. I was moved. I was inspired. And I'm a little kid. And I found the movie just overwhelming. And I watched it the next day and the next day. So that was the beginning of my history of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Mm -hmm. The next time I saw Mr. Deeds Goes to Town... I was in college, and I want to say I was a sophomore or a junior. 
The USA Film Festival, first year, the guest was Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca. They were the the, the premier year, uh, 10 from our show of shows. And wow. Sid Caesar talked about classical television. And it was a big deal for Dallas to have this film. Second year, Frank Capra and Gene Arthur oh. <laughs> uh, were the guest stars introducing Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I'm sitting on the second row of the theater, and Gene Arthur sits next to me. The next time I saw Mr. Deeds Goes to Town was with Frank Capra and with (laughs) Gene Arthur. And I cannot imagine any other film. Well, now I guess I see a lot of movies with the people who made. You know, I saw Thelma Louise with Ridley Scott. Now I could say that, you know, but, but that's a cheat. But back then, you know, it, it was magical. Mm. And the film is magic. Um, I don't know. How do you want to tackle this bear? What, 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 what approach do you think you would like to take? Well, I mean, usually I'll ask, you know, what is the the shortest synopsis that you could give for people who haven't seen this movie? Uh, there is uh, a short plot synopsis and a moral synopsis. Mm. The plot synopsis is this everyman from Mandrake Falls, Vermont, ends up his uncle, who he hardly knows, who was a multimillionaire, which he never saw, dies in a car accident in Italy, and he inherits $20 million. And in that, since you say this was 1936, I did a little inflation calculator as to what that would mean. Oh, boy. (laughs) We're in in the, so this movie was made in the height of the Depression. Right. So Longfellow Deeds inherits $20 million, which according to our calculator today is somewhere around $480 million. The whole simple fortune goes to you, $20 million. Oh, I heard you all right. $20 million, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Oh, it'll do in a pinch. Yes, indeed. I, I wonder why he left all that money to me. I don't need it. Ooh. I mean, he's not <laughs> Mick Jagger, but he's close. Right. And you have to, re- it's, it's in the Depression. Mm-hmm. So he has to go from Vermont to New York to inhabit them. So this everyman comes and becomes uh, this, in an instant, a multimillionaire, and all of his problems begin. Mm. And the movie is about uh, love, true love, swindlers, people trying to destroy him for the money, everything. And the drama begins when he gets his money. The, th- that is, uh, and they mount a pretty significant attack on him and his character on his life to utterly destroy him. Yeah. So they could take his money from him. That's Mr. Deeds. Uh in screenwriting class, they say there are only two stories that any great film is. Mm-hmm. There are only two templates of any great film. One is uh, Stranger Comes to Town. Well, you have that with Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Uh, he goes from Mandrake Falls to New York. Stranger Comes to Town. And the mm. second one is A Man Goes on a Journey. Oh, my God. Does he go on a journey? I'd say so. And and I would add a third one, that none of those matter unless you get to the third story, 
that only matters to us in the audience, and that is the hero's journey. Mm. The, the moral depiction of what this movie is, is it is a movie about goodness. He is the embodiment of goodness. But mm. what I have found watching this movie again for you, I did this <laughs> for you, Rebecca, and I'm so happy you twisted my arm to watch this again. And you tell me if this is true in the uh-huh. films you've seen. Okay. When stories are about goodness, they're not really about goodness. They're about the cost of goodness. Mm, yes, I'd say that is if, definitely and, and if I take a, this this film, if if you know your theater, uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible mm. is about two two dials away from this movie. Like it's really serious. You're you're living in the Salem witch trial era in The Crucible, in which people who are power hungry, in this case, religious fanatics, mm-hmm. will hang you, burn you alive for being a witch or whatever if you don't toe the line, if you don't mm-hmm. answer their questions. And they have all sorts of tricks and traps to maintain their power and confiscate your goods. That is The Crucible. In this one, Mr. Longfellow Deeds is put into a crucible where he is torn to pieces by people, and the only thing he has is his goodness. Mm. And that's the thing he's going to maintain. And that, I I don't want to be a spoiler, but it is a (laughs) Frank Capra movie. Uh, That is what this film is about. And you could Mm. watch it again and again and again and again and again because it succeeds on so many levels. On the story level, it is, you could say it's a fairy tale and a damn good one. It, yeah. it isn't like you're dealing with real people, but you're dealing with forces. If you if you want to consider Mr. Deeds a force of goodness and Mr. Cedar and Cedar, Cedar, Cedar and Buddington <laughs> of that law firm are yes. evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, they use the same jargon that we hear today, that they want to take the money, the fortune away from deeds, and he doesn't want the money to begin with. Right. I mean, he says, I don't need this. They want to take the money away from him, as they say, because it is irresponsible to let such a simple man, such a simpleton, he's, they say he's as simple as a child. You mm-hmm. know, it's irresponsible to let him have that money. And everybody wants a piece of it. Yeah. Um, that is... Uh, and you will keep coming back for the performances, the oh, story. Uh, you have performance of Gary Cooper <clears throat> and Gene Arthur, amazing performances at the center of the film. Lionel Stander as Corny Cobb, the uh, press secretary, brilliant performance there. Uh, you, you Good performances all around, everywhere. Mm. And then you have it for the directing and the cinematography. Because nobody does it like Frank Capra. No. <laughs> it, it, every scene is filled with ferocious energy. Mm. And, and uh, how to ta- tell a moral tale without it being sappy. Mm. And, and the way you do it is because there's a cost to everything. People are laid bare in this movie. Uh, lies are exposed. Uh, they have to either go the route of, 
you know, protecting themselves or saying like, no, I did wrong. I'm going to stand up for what's right, even if at the cost of, of myself, mm. of who I am. Right. There's a cost to all of the goodness in the film. So it's not goofy. It's not sappy, mm. uh, even though it is Frank Capra. <laughs> and it is funny on top of it. There's a lot of funny moments in this film that I oh, wasn't gosh, really yeah. expecting. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, to be, you know, I, I have all, all sorts of notes on this, like the beginning of the film, you know, they have, it's a Columbia, I think, film. Yes. You, you know, you have the little statuette holding the firecracker or whatever. Right. And, this, and, you, and, and it's a joy to see the evolution of what that firecracker has become. Now it's very sophisticated. Yeah. But here, it really looks like you have some sort of statue <laughs> holding a Roman candle. Yeah. And then the music. The opening music for this movie is a kind of dance hall version of For He's a Jolly Good Fellow. So as an audience, and, and this is what I tell people all the time when, when they give me scripts to read or, or things, I go, number one, you got to start fast. Hmm. Whatever story you're telling, start fast. And how much faster can you start but with music? Like three students, because it says to me as the watcher, I am watching something that's going to be comical, Mm -hmm. that's lighthearted, that's a a story of victory. I'm not Mm going to be watching Braveheart. The guy's not going to be eviscerated (laughs) at the end. And and then you have the big logo, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur. Mm. And... uh, uh, Maybe I, sh- I should say a couple things about Jean Arthur since I met her personally. And Please some, do. <laughs> some things about Gary Cooper, uh, even though I never met him. Uh, but, but after I saw this film, I went like, oh, God. When I was a child, I went like, God, that's great. Now, what would you suspect was Gary Cooper's past? Gary Cooper and Jean Arthur have something in common, first of all. That's kind of a trick question. Do you know what they have in common? I do not. They're, those aren't their real names. <sighs> Should have known. <laughs> yeah, Gary Cooper is something like Frank Frank Cooper, uh, Frank B. Cooper, something like that from Montana. And uh, Gene Arthur was, you know, look it up on Wikipedia. I, I, I can't remember. Uh, you know, like. Gabriella Gabardine. I don't know what. Ah. But she changed her name to Jean Arthur because those were her two personal heroes. Jean for Joan of Arc and Arthur for King Arthur. Wow. So they represented her two heroes. Now, Gary Cooper, this is a this is a crazy story. Gary Cooper wanted to be an artist. He was born in England, believe mm-hmm. it or not. His parents came to Montana. He was raised in Montana, and all he wanted to do was be a painter. He went. He was schooled in England, uh, even though he didn't like all the, you know, how preppy all the English schools were. And his right. whole thing was to be an artist, an oil, you know, painting in oils and, and things. A painter. I, I don't want to say painter because it makes him sound like a house painter. Right. <laughs> but but to earn money to go to art school and become a painter, he worked in Montana riding horses 
uh, and working with people, right? And the way he started riding horses, this is horrible. He was in a car accident and he hurt his hip and the doctor, there would be lawsuits today. Let me tell you, Rebecca, there would be lawsuits. (laughs) The doctor said to help heal your hip, which Mm -hmm. has been damaged in this car accident, I recommend horseback riding to build Uh. your strength up. (laughs) Let me tell you, as one who's had my neck broken riding a horse, you don't necessarily build up a lot of strength riding a horse. Right. So he began riding horses to build strength in Montana, fell in with some cowboys and said, like, do you want to help us herd up these horses? So he began helping them herd horses. And then from them, he learned some cattle tricks. And then they started shooting some silent movies there. And they said, we need cowboys for the silent movies. There he he became an extra. (laughs) He was an extra and a stunt man on a horse. Also, he could earn money. To go to, to become a painter, <laughs> to become an artist. So, so he keeps that. That's his route. So his route to becoming an actor was uh, Jean Arthur. Uh, when I sat next to her, she said the thing about Capra is that he loved to work with theater actors. Now, mm. Gary Cooper, I don't think was much of a theater actor. But he has an amazing theater background, which you will not believe when I tell you. No one will believe it unless you already know it. Uh, (laughs) And Gene Arthur uh, ended up being in several silent films or whatever, but she she never was confident as an actress. Mm. She never had confidence, and it was only in theater that she felt like she really came to life. And no one knew if she was the most beautiful woman they had seen on screen or the strangest looking character woman that they ever saw on screen <laughs> because the two sides of her face looked different. And she mm. was one of those people, like I think it was Claudette Colbert, that said she only wanted to be shot one side of her face. Right. She only wanted the left side of her face to be shot, Jean Arthur did, because it was she felt her beautiful side. Mm. But it was doing theater that was was something that she sincerely loved and she was the drama teacher. And at one point, after doing Mr. Deeds and a lot of her <laughs> career, she became a drama teacher at Vassar. Oh, wow. Where she taught Meryl Streep. Ha! <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. So she was terrified. She, she was kind of just something about the fact that she's both the most beautiful and the most odd-looking woman in the world her theater background, her, and just the type of film this was, just as Gary Cooper was an everyman, she is an every woman. Mm. You, you know, she's beautiful, funny, odd, smart, uh, ambitious. Uh, she is a perfect portrait of the modern woman, every woman. Uh, and not like I'm a model. She's like every woman. Like Gary mm. Cooper is every man. And apparently during the filming of, of Mr. D, she was so terrified every take. You know, sometimes she would even throw up in between takes. Yes, I, and, I did read that. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and it's hard to believe when you see this film. Yeah. So, so you have these performances at the head. And then you have Lionel Standard playing Corny Cop. 
Now, let me ask you this. There are a lot of ways to tell a story. We already said that. This right. is a great narrative. Just the story mm-hmm. is great. Acting is great. Who do you think, whenever I watch a film, who is the audience in this film? Which character are we supposed to be? Us who, us folk who are watching the movie, who do you think we're supposed to be? I just want to get your opinion. There's no right or wrong answer. Right. But I have a, a very strong opinion. <laughs> Um, do you mean in, in the sense of like, who is representing who, who, who represents us? Who, who do as an audience, I'm watching this, I'm going like, this is the, this is the embodiment of me in the movie. Like, uh, for example, when I watch Taken, mm. I am very much Liam Neeson, <laughs> no way around it. You know, I still know the speech. Right. Of course. <laughs> Just bring back my daughter and everything will be fine. But you know, I you know, you are meant to fu- you are meant to be his eyes and ears. You are Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. Who do you think is that character in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? Mm, I mean, the obvious answer I feel like would be Mr. Deeds, but I think there's a lot going in his mind of like that we don't really see. Correct. I I would say <laughs> that Mr. Deeds in this film is kind of an archetype and it's mm-hmm. very hard for him to be my spokesman as 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 someone watching this movie. And Jean Arthur is a Pulitzer Prize winner uh and she's devious as hell. Mm-hmm. And cynical as hell, and her heart gets broken fifty ways to Sundance mm-hmm. in this film, and she completely wins you over. But I don't think she is your spokesperson either. Mm. Even though you you aspire to be Gary Cooper, you wish you were him. You wish yeah. you had all the money, and you wish you had the strength of character he does, but. I don't think we think we're him. No. Who do you think we, Frank Capra, wanted us to follow? That's a hard question now that, now that you're pointing it you, out. I, and I've seen the movie so many times, and I finally got a eureka moment. It's yeah. Corny Cobb. <laughs> it's, it is the press secretary. Uh-huh. We view Mr. Deeds the way he views him. First of all, he he has no love for Cedar, 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 and Buddington, yes. you know, who that he's working for. You know, he views them with the jaundiced eye. He doesn't believe in anything. He's cynical. They go to Mandrake Falls to find Mr. Deeds, and he's making fun of Mandrake Falls like we would. Right. Because everybody there is so damn backwards. <laughs> you, you know, that it's that New England kind of, you know, close to the vest comedy and kind of making yeah. fun of things. And what are you doing, friend? Well, why don't you say what's on your mind, friend? I <laughs> well, they said I, they wanted to see the house. <laughs> they said they wanted to see the house, not Mr. Deeds. I took him to the house. You, you, you know, uh, and, and the f- camera always goes to Corny Cobb when Mr. Deeds says something and it goes to him and he's just looking that he writes, you know, Mr. Deeds writes poetry for the people in the town. It, you know, he, he yeah. makes his money 
writing poems, mainly like for birthdays and anniversaries and Christmas and Mother's Day. Ridiculous, right? Yeah. And it's just a shot of Corny Cop looking at him like this. And it's like, he's ready to hand Deeds the smelling salt (laughs) when he finds out that he's inherited 20 million, but Deeds doesn't care about the money. And it just goes... (laughs) It just goes to him going, well, now I've seen everything. And we value deeds the way Corny Cobb does. At first, he thinks he's a lamb going to the slaughter. Mm. Going to New York, we feel like deeds is out of his level. He cannot handle this situation. He's got crooks and lawyers and thieves running all around him. The city is too fast for this slow-moving tuba player. And it's important that Deeds in the town band plays the tuba. He doesn't play the melody. Mm. He plays the tuba. He's the bass note. Yeah. He's the note that gives everything a foundation. And when when uh, Cobb watches as he's getting in, in, in the uh, mansion as Deeds is giving his pants and shirt and coat measured. <laughs> yeah. And these, and he's never had clothes made to order, you know, right. cut for him. While everybody is, the lawyers are wanting to get him to hand them over the power of attorney for the fortune. And you also have other, you know, shysters coming in saying, my client, you owe them money. Uh, all these people coming in. The opera coming over to the to the <laughs> mansion, wanting him to be the chairman of the board of the opera, so he can make up the deficit of one hundred eighty thousand right. dollars. You know, I expect you to. But Cor- but we follow Corny Cobb and his reaction to deeds. And one thing Capra does, and I, I'm just like a little over. Let me find this. Um, <laughs> Robert Riskin was the screenwriter of this mm. movie, right? A moment, side note for Robert Riskin. (laughs) Robert Riskin also wrote the Academy Award-winning film, It Happened One Night. Mr. Uh. Deeds Goes to Town. He also wrote Lost Horizon. He also wrote the screenplay for You Can't Take It With You. He Uh. also wrote the screenplay for Meet John Doe. The Thin Man Goes Home. And in in the 1960s, he wrote the screenplay for Pocketful of Miracles. Really? I'm saying this is one of the greatest writers ever. So in his hands, he knows when he gives Corny Cobb a line. Mm. He knows what he is. And what he does in the screenplay is he puts together a series of catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And then you have a series of Mr. Deeds dealing with the catastrophes. One after the other, after the other, after the other. And we experience it one way as an odd, first of all, we have a stress level as we watch what he's dealing with in New York. And then we have this kind of wonderment as to how he handles it all. Mm-hmm. And then he walks up and he punches he punches <laughs> the other lawyer in the nose, throws him out of mansion. And Corny Cobb says, I can't hold back anymore. I got to shake your hand. Right. Congratulations. <laughs> you know, we feel what Corny Cobb does. Mm-hmm. He, and Corny Cobb gives us the exposition. This is the next thing that's going to happen. This He is the character that tells us what the next frame of action is. He's the one that uncovers the lies that keep the movie going, that move us into Act 3, really. Mm. Um, so, 
Another way Capra tells a story, and this is something I just noticed this time, and that is the camera work. Mm. So, if you, as a viewer, look at the center of the frame, watch when Capra uses the center of the frame and when he does not. And also, the way Capra gives vitality to a frame is by having some of the characters in focus and some of them in the foreground and the background that are out of focus. Yeah. And sometimes the main characters of a scene are not center frame. And sometimes the main characters of the scene are not in focus when they talk. Mm. And it gives this vibrance. Um, I was taking notes of some amazing uses of the frame. In most of the film, Capra, like Gene Arthur told me, liked to shoot lots of long takes mm. because he was working with actors that had a lot of experience, theater experience, and he could shoot multiple people. It isn't like a modern movie where it's close-up, 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 close-up. You have, you have long takes of a scene where, like the scene in the restaurant with all the literati. Mm. After he wins his fortune, when he takes uh, Jean Arthur out on the first date when she's hungry, yeah. <laughs> she's posing <laughs> as a starving girl that's looking for work. Of course, it is the Depression. Right. And he, t- and he takes her out to get her food, mm-hmm. to feed her. And the music, uh, the violinist, <laughs> incredible. So sweet. So he, sh- he shoots those people in close-up. He has Gene Arthur in close-up, but she's center frame for her close-up. But Gary Cooper is not center frame for his close-up. Mm. He's, but he's looking at her uh, with a glance of like a man that's smitten. Yeah. A first sight. Absolutely. Uh, when you have the scene with all the writers getting together and they begin to make fun of him when they, oh, he's the one who writes poetry. He writes Mother's Day cards and Mandrake Falls, and these are all big shot poets. It's all done mostly in one big take. You, mm. you have everybody sitting at the table, and then Capro covers two sides of the table. So they mainly did three takes, but there are large sections of that scene that are done with multiple people, no coverage, one take. And Gene Arthur said they did this a lot. Uh, Gene Arthur also became the star of uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can't, I'm trying to remember exactly how many shoot days she said that they did. And it's remarkable. Because it's a long movie. It's a two-hour movie for sure. Yeah. And I want to say they shot it in something like between 38 and 45 days. Wow. Because so much of it, they shoot like a play where the mm. actors know their lines. The camera is simple. One th- Here's one thing to look for in the frame as, as lovers of film will look. In the scene in which uh, Gene Arthur's character uh, Babe Bennett, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, is being uh, introduced. Mm-hmm. It is 
where the head of the bullpen in the newspaper room is dressing everybody down because they got to get a story on deeds. This guy, it's it's going to be worth a fortune. This rube has come to New York. We got to get the dirt on this guy. We got to do it. And so it's this big shot of people. What is center frame in that shot? I don't expect you to know until you go back to see it. What's center frame in that shot is a hat rack with a hat on top of it and a coat hung beside it. So you have reporters piled up. You have Jean Arthur next to the head editor, uh-huh. and she's trying to do a magic trick. She's trying right. to make <laughs> this rope go into a knot by doing a lasso, right. probably something she learned from Gary Cooper personally. You know <laughs> how, how those guys can make right. the rope turn into a lasso. So she's there. All the other reporters on the other side of the frame, and in the middle of the frame is this empty coat rack with a hat and a coat on it. And I looked at it this time and I go, it's Deeds. You have these reporters talking about who is Mr. Deeds. The people need to know who Deeds is. And there, center frame, is a coat and a hat with nobody in it. Uh, That's another way Capra does storytelling, is look and see what's center frame. And quite Mm -hmm. often, it's not the person who's speaking or especially in these large shots, there'll be something symbolic that's center frame that is another element of the story. And I go like, that's something. That's masterful. Another thing Capra does, uh, (laughs) I'm just fanboying, fanboy on (laughs) Capra. Like, he always has something. I I did, uh, at the same time, At the same time, I watched Mr. Deeds in college, so that would be sophomore year. I was part of this group where directors came all over the world to teach us their secrets. One of them is not Frank Capra, but William Gaskell, the Royal Court Theater Mm -hmm. in London. And he said, always have something real on stage. Something real on stage has a ton of power, more power than you can imagine. So, If you have to open a bottle of wine on stage, open it on stage. Pour the wine into the glass. The audience will be transfixed. Capra knows that trick in in his directing a film. In these scenes with lots of people, you have real stuff happening. You have Gene Arthur trying to do a rodeo trick or trying to tie a not. In the middle of all this talking, you have her doing something real. In the second scene with Jean Arthur, she's practicing a sleight of hand uh, trick of making uh, a penny disappear. So she's in the foreground, out of focus, doing, she's, she dominates the frame, out of focus. The editor is in focus. Mm -hmm. And, and she's telling about what her date quote, end quote, was like with him about what a ruby is, <laughs> and she's doing a magic trick with her hands. And as a viewer, I'm watching her do this trick because she's really doing a magic trick. Yeah. And there's no cutaway. Again, it's a long dialogue scene, no edits, no cuts, and, and they're doing it because they're theater people and they're used to doing it. That's something amazing uh, she does. Now, before I forget, Am I talking too much? No. Okay. No. This That's is what going we're here to blow, for. <laughs> this is going to blow you away. I'm ready. I'm ready for okay. it. Okay. 
When I grew up, Gary Cooper was always made fun of as like not a real actor. Like he's he's stiff. He was a cowboy. He was a stunt cowboy. He he isn't a real actor. You know, Marlon Brando's the real actor. Mm. Uh, all all these people are the real actor. Gary Cooper was a devotee of Konstantin Stanislavski. He studied the acting method of Stanislavski, and not only this. And this is the part that actually actually burned my chaps. <laughs> uh, the lead actor of the Moscow Art Theater was uh, Ant- Anton Chekhov was Stanislavski's big writer. He mm-hmm. wrote Three Sisters, uh, Cherry Orchard. He wrote four big plays. But Anton Chekhov's nephew, Michael Chekhov, was the star of the Moscow Art Theater. He was a handsome leading man uh, and the audiences loved Michael Chekhov. Mm. Michael Chekhov did not believe in any of Stanislavski's stuff of method <laughs> acting. He thought uh-huh. it was all hooey. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and Stanislavski was trying to teach, and and I and you have to remember what Stanislavski's method acting was coming from was the at- melodrama acting of the 19th century, mm-hmm. that the actors were made faces and they made gestures and and there were specific gestures that indicated specific things like if you were a villain you always entered stage uh, you know upstage left you, mm-hmm. you know it was uh regimented so the audiences would know stanislavski said no no he was one of the first people who staged a scene in which the backs were to the audience in a play mm. of Chekhov, where the two people on stage, their backs were to the audience, and they had a discussion. And as we see in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, there are several important scenes yeah. when the two main characters have their backs to the camera. Very much what Stanislavski uh, talked about. Michael Chekhov said, no, 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 no. You know, all this inner life stuff is is who he says there's only three types of actors, three types of characters in all of drama, head characters, heart characters, and groin characters. Mm. Uh, And he taught, and that method is still taught here in Los Angeles places, and it really works in a lot of ways. Head characters, the energy comes from their head. Uh, They kind of lean forward. They sit on the edge of their seat. They speak quickly and every, their gestures are heart characters are like every hero in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. The gesture, they sit balance. The gestures come from the heart to be or not to be. That is the mm-hmm. question. And then you have growing characters like Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see Queen Mab have been with thee, <laughs> you know, and all the characters on Deadwood would be growing characters. Right. So, not only did Gary Cooper study the Stanislavski method at the actor's studio, Mm -hmm. but his personal acting trainer for a while was Michael Chekhov from from Stanislavski's theater. Michael Chekhov came from the Moscow Art Theater to New York City, and Gary Cooper enlisted him as his teacher. Wow. Michael Chekhov taught Gary Cooper how to act. So me being a big fan of Michael Chekhov Uh and his method, I thought, well, what kind of an actor is Gary Cooper? A head character, a heart character, or a groin character? 
And he and a Mr. Deeds is the ultimate heart character. Mm. Everything comes from his heart. Yeah. Uh, you have many more sophisticated and fancier actors in the world than Gary Cooper. But the guy is naked in front of the camera. Yeah. I mean, he is, if he is humiliated, if he is in love, if he is feeling joy, you you are there with him. And it's all the great stone face. It's all, you know, he isn't doing it. He's just experiencing it. Mm. And uh, Gary Cooper is the big Stanislavski actor from, from that era. Uh, pro- great proponent of Stanislavski. And Michael Chekhov was his teacher. That blew me away. That's amazing. And, uh, and, if, the, and if there are any lovers of Michael Chekhov, I take it. <laughs> There is a great way of uh, using Michael Chekhov in auditions, especially in voiceover auditions. Like if you want to say, boy, that's a great cup of coffee. If that's your line. Yeah. If you say it as a head character, boy, that's a great cup of coffee. <laughs> or if you say it as a heart character, boy, that's a great cup of coffee. <laughs> or if you say it as a groin character, hey, that's a great cup of coffee. <laughs> And you get three different takes. There you go. There you go, Mike. We're learning. <laughs> there you are. There you are. So anyway, that is, uh, you got to watch the frame. You got to watch what Capra puts in frame. Usually when Gary Cooper is doing a close-up in frame, he is usually in the center of the frame until the trial at the end. Mm. And then his close-ups, everyone else, their close-ups are center frame. His close-ups are far on my left, you know, uh, far left. He's far left, and it's a completely unbalanced frame. Mm. So Capra tells the story with with balancing, with the way he balances the frame. Absolutely. Well, and it's so interesting that you that you bring up this kind of nakedness that Gary Cooper has, because it wasn't even something that I picked up on, but I was like very aware that I could tell everything he was thinking of all of the time. Like when he finds out about Babe and he just like goes to the corner, there's like a vulnerable little boy, but also like a very stern businessman throughout this whole film. It's just so interesting to watch like which way he's going to go, but we always like understand what his thought process is it's beautiful absolutely absolutely beautiful yeah and the trial at the end his sanity trial at the end yes it's magnificent when he refuses to testify in his own behalf yeah and it's only when god can you do spoilers you know oh absolutely please do (laughs) it's only when uh uh gene arthur Begins to protest to the judge saying, this is the way these trials are done. You know, you got to give him the right. I've been to a million of these trials. This isn't the way they're run. This guy is being railroaded and doing everything. And then Mr. Cedar, in his attempt to also destroy her, says, Mm. your honor, what she says is meaningless. It's obvious the woman is in love with him. Right. And, and, and. 
you know, she continues to talk. She goes, that has nothing to do with it. And Cedar says, answer the question. Are you in love with him? Yes, I am. It doesn't matter. And that's what makes Gary Cooper come to life. So the element of goodness that he embodies, love is stronger than anything. like that, that isn't just corny as all hell, because you can't do it without cost. The, 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 the future of the film is going to be Babe and, you know, Mr. Deeds get together. Mm-hmm. They're going to be married, and they're probably going to go back to Mandrake Falls with no money mm-hmm. and have a very happy life. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, it's important, too, what he planned, why he's considered to be insane. Right. Because he wants to give his money away to the farmers who have nothing. Because it's Dust Bowl. It's nobody has food to eat. And as he's being, you know, nothing happens. As he, he doesn't expect that the woman he's dating is the one who's betraying him. Mm. and is lying about who she is so she could get stories, headlines that make him look ridiculous. But that's what triggers the farmer to come into his mansion to kill him. Yeah. And then he comes in and is going to shoot him. You're about to get on the front page again, Mr. Deeds. You know, and, uh, and then the farmer crumbles mm. under what he's about to do and Deeds feeds him yeah and then he says like i know what i have to do now yeah this is what the money is made for and you figure 500 million dollars and he's going to give each farmer 10 acres and a plow and a horse and a cow and grain and if they're able to keep the farm for three years it's theirs Mm. if they're able to make it go of it it's there so individual uh it isn't the government giving a handout. Uh, if Mr. Deeds were the government, you have to prove that 
you're able to do the work and you're able to make it your own and then yeah. it's yours. And this was back in, you say, 36. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people kind of knew the formula then of, you know, you can't just give people stuff. Right. You know, because they don't appreciate it. <laughs> you know, people have to, the only thing money is good for is is making something positive mm. happen in your life as opposed to just buying crap. Yeah. Because let me tell you, when you become a grandparent, you're going to be looking at your house filled with crap that, that, that you've accumulated over your entire life. And that baby is throwing now. Baby is tall enough to reach shelves and grabbing pieces of your crap and throwing them maybe through windows of yours. And you go, why do I still have that crap? I, I have so much of this stuff. You know, yeah. and and uh, and deeds. <laughs> let me get back on the subject. And <laughs> and in it, like Gary Cooper says at the beginning, the only thing he wants is a new mouthpiece for his tuba. Yeah, because the kids steal them all the time because they make good bean shooters. <laughs> and exactly, he doesn't need a lot of money. He yeah. doesn't need it. You know, we all think money is the answer, but what the answer is is I've learned by being a grandparent how quickly the dream forms. It doesn't Mm. form when you're in college, and it doesn't form when you're in high school. I could see it now in my little grandbaby, like the wonder she has with the world, and she's putting the pieces together so fast. I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was like five. The dream happens fast. Mm. And it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of luck and oh, and a lot of luck and a lot of luck mm. to to make that dream happen, but it happens at an early age, and you have to do it. No one's going to hand it to you. It's mm. not going to be given to you, no matter what it is. And that's something that Mr. Deeds is saying. It's it ain't the money, friends. It ain't the money. It ain't writing a letter to Elon Musk and saying, you know, I have a great idea. Can you bankroll me? Right. No. It, it, if, if you can't be happy without money, you know, you certainly won't be happy with money. Mm. But money does make things a lot easier, especially like sure. parking closer to the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the dentist, it makes all those things, those things make life worth living. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, and it's so funny that like you, one of the things you said was like, you hope that you have the strength that Mr. Deeds has, because one of the first things I wrote down in my notes, like when watching the movie, because it was my first time. And one of the things was like, he doesn't immediately, he's like, well, I don't need the money. Like, I'm fine. Like, I'm good with my life as it is, you know give it to somebody else essentially. And in my mind, I was like, how is he so happy that when somebody offers him $20 million, he's like, meh. I'm like, how well adjusted and happy in your life do you have to be? Because I fall into the same trap that I think other people would in that situation of like, of course I would want that money. Of course I would want to do something with that. But well, after watching the whole movie, you kind of hope that you have the same attitude of, well, I'm comfortable the way I am. 
but I could use this money to help people. Like it is definitely something that you hope that you have the strength to do that. Even if you keep some of that money for yourself to like pay your mortgage, do things like that. You hope that you have the wherewithal to also like contribute towards humanity in a sense. Right. There, There's, you know, everything has its limits mm. and, and a, a, a bottom limit and a top limit. If you have less than a certain amount of money, life is miserable. Mm. And if you have more than a certain amount of money, you need to have a lot of help. But the, but the whole thing of Mr. Deeds is mm. it teaches us limits. There's obviously the limit of the farmers mm. who are starving and who have nothing and are desperate. And then there are the people like Mr. Cedar, the lawyer who just had some sort of malfeasance and owes the company a half a million dollars mm. and wants doesn't want anyone to see the books because that's why he wants the power of attorney from Deeds so he can steal some of that money to help square the books. Right. Uh, you can have too much money too. So a balance of, I think that's a very Zen thing, right? Mm. To everything, there is a balance. And yeah. Frank Capra was very much, if you look at his work, you know, he was very much power to the people and the basic strength of the people is goodness. And in part of goodness and one man helping another is a strength that is a stronger political force than any of the um, standard st standard political models. There's nothing more powerful than one person helping another person mm. and that spreading and that catching on. And, and that's, I think, Capra's method all, always. Absolutely. Well, and it's such a great you know, message to have. And I wanted to ask you as well, you know, I know you have a great love for this movie. Is there, and this, you know, always a hard question, is there a favorite moment in this movie that you find yourself going back to? Uh, <laughs> I know, it's a difficult uh, question. There's there's several. And they're <laughs> usually have to do with Gene Arthur and uh, Gary Cooper on screen at the same time. Mm. So there's the, you're a lady in distress. <laughs> yes. You are, you know, at the, at the restaurant, yeah. there's that. Uh, there's also the moment at the restaurant where, oh, I understand now you just brought me in here to make fun of me. Mm. I guess it's easy to hurt someone's feelings when you don't care how bad you hurt them. Yeah. Great I may line. look funny to you, but if you came to Mandrake Falls, you'd probably look pretty funny to us, but none of us would laugh at you and try to make you feel embarrassed. Mm. Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, this is an odd fact about the movie, is that Cooper was cast in the movie before the script was finished. <laughs> and so once Cooper was cast, you know, they were looking at some of these lines like, this is exactly the line Gary Cooper would say. Mm. So there is certainly uh, the moment where Gene uh, Arthur screams out, you know, the, the whole moment in the trial. Mm. Obviously, the woman's in love with What if I. <laughs> right. <laughs> that moment's great. Uh. I mean, so, so many, mm. you know, and they're silly. You, you know, there's one 
great moment in the restaurant where uh, the drunken poet loves that Gary Cooper has knocked their heads together. Right. <laughs> and he follows them out of the restaurant and says, I demand you sock, you missed me. You you need to sock me right here. At least I'm different <laughs> with these guys. I know when I'm a heel. I deserve it. I deserve it. And as he's talking, he's drunk and he falls backwards. <laughs> and in the middle of his, he keeps going to the speech. Gary Cooper grabs him and pulls him back on his feet. The guy goes, thank you, and continues talking. Right. <laughs> and you see, and you see us all in one take. <laughs> it was like, they may have rehearsed it, but there are a million ways that could have gone wrong. Right. And it's just, it's just a perfect moment of what happens when you capture spontaneity on film. Mm. And and it seems like Capra always tried to catch Bond. I I heard Jean, you know, when I call her Jean, <laughs> Jean Arthur. Uh, there is a moment where they're in the park, and she learned how to play the drums from her father. Mm, and so, yes. right, she's going to play the drums, and then Gary Cooper says, "Well, I could do humoresque." Well, she's doing way down upon the Swanee River, and he yes. says, "Well, I'll do humor, humoresque with it," and he pretends to do the tuba. But Gene <laughs> Arthur said that whole that whole scene was improvised because she had learned to play drums when she was a little girl, <laughs> and so they said, "We'll do something," and so they right. just made that scene up. And and there's an example of spontaneity happening and it doesn't have to work out perfectly or have no rough edges because there are rough edges all through the film because if you captured the real mm. uh the rough is okay yeah the, the problem is with a lot of modern films is everything is smooth to where there's no rough edges then you need something right you, you need something to grab onto so but this movie has plenty to grab onto Absolutely. Well, and there's so many fun, like little little things that are happening in the movie, like him sliding down the banister, or you know, uh, 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 my gosh, his name, uh, the 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 pub, um, Corny Cobb. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I was Lionel, like, it's a food. Lionel Standard. Lionel Standard. Yes, he has so many. Fun little quips, like with the opera guys. He's like, the smelling salts are in the bathroom. You can <laughs> yeah. find them on your way out kind of thing. And it's like, it's so quick and small. And like the scene where they're listening to echoes in the foyer because he just wants them to hear it and experience it. It's like there's all these little tiny moments in this film that like make it rich. And, and you know, I've seen that scene now. I've seen that movie i've seen the movie with the full audience right with the full mm, audience right and when uh, gary cooper punches the the poets yes. and stuff at the table the whole audience erupted in applause when i saw it <laughs> right when i was in college right. and i saw with everyone corny cobb stuff gets tons of laughs mm. uh tons of laughs um what was the moment you just mentioned um Oh, when they're uh, they're doing the echoes in his house when like they in the do the, of echoes. the night. Yeah, when they do the echoes, when they do the echoes, the studio audience. When I saw it, was absolutely silent. And then when Gary Cooper finishes, let that be a lesson to you. There was applause. Yeah, in a movie audience, there was applause, and that moment always puzzled me. And then now that I'm a grandfather, 
<laughs> I take a look at the symbolism of that moment mm. where he says, you know, with, with one of his servants, you, you, you make the sound, then a second servant comes out, then a third servant come out, then they, four of them make an echo in harmony. Then they do it again. And then he goes, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> and the main servant tells the other two to go away and he remains there alone. And the last one is him where he hears his echo and he goes off. Yeah. And I realize that's what the movie's trying to tell us. That mm -hmm. whole thing is we have this one moment to shout and create an echo. And and it's and he goes, let that be a lesson to you. Mm. The sound you make will come back. And 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 so if that sound is this movie, which is goodness. If that sound is the strength of goodness, the honesty of goodness, that sound will echo. That sound will come back. Mm. And I go like, that's the haiku of the movie. That's <laughs> why these grown-ups in the movie theater when I was watching it in college gave that scene an ovation because it's just out of the middle of nowhere. It's just, huh? Yeah. What the hell is this? <laughs> the whole movie stops to have this scene. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. It it really works with an audience. You you never see that many movies that work really well with an audience. You know, Harry Met Sally is certainly one. Mm. You know, that with an audience, that thing rolls. <laughs> I gotta say. Great movie. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask you, because I know we kind of touched on this before we started recording, because, you know, so there's this film, which is very rich. But then there's also a version of this film from 2002 with Adam Sandler, which is a very different animal because I've seen both, but you haven't seen the newer one. And is like, is there a reason you were like, no, not going to do that? Or <laughs> uh, I guess what year was that? Uh, 2002, I believe. 2002. Yeah, I was pretty depressed. Into no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. The it, it's funny, you know, when I was younger, I had all this time and I could see movies all the time. And when I first came out to California, I was at the movies several times a week. Right. Uh, seeing the cheap double features of first-run mm -hmm. movies, you know, and they would put them out in cheap ones. And then i go to revival houses. and uh, But I've had periods in my life since then, where I was working so much mm. that I never really had a chance to go to the movies. Mm. And and I would bet 2002 could have been one of those periods of time because <laughs> I love Adam and, and I think he's terrific. Mm. And, and he'd be a good choice for that. How did you like the movie? How was that movie? Uh, so uh, it's been a, lot, a while since I've seen it, but it's a very much a different animal in that a lot of the same... Uh, moments are in it. So you have Winona Ryder playing the Gene Arthur character and, and it, it, I think it leans more on the comedy, but there is kind of a lighthearted, you know, small town guy type thing. And they do change the ending a little bit. I won't say how in case you decide to, to jump on there, but <laughs> I think it, it definitely has that Adam Sandler brand of humor. Um, but it was interesting to kind of see, you know, the, the differences between this, which I think is, you know, has that classic Hollywood feel it's rich. There's like a lot going on 
versus the Adam Sandler, which I think is is very much comedy driven, if that makes sense. But yeah. I yeah, I enjoyed both of them. But this it was fun to watch this version, only knowing the Adam Sandler version and and having it be rich in like heartfelt sentiment of like don't let money change you still have that you know childlike wonder for life and you know that kind of element which was fun (laughs) here's something you probably don't know yes and that is the rich past i have with winona Ryder. really so i did great balls of fire with winona Ryder, and i think winona was maybe 17 at the time i'm not sure Mm -hmm. about then but that's when i was about to become a father And we shot in Memphis for three and a half months, something like that. And then we went to London for a month. Mm. And uh, I got married in Memphis. Mm -hmm. I married Anne in Memphis. Right after that, not right after that, but obviously a few months after that. Uh (laughs) Um, uh, Winona and I were doing um, uh, Roxy Carmichael. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Roxy Carmichael. And uh, I want to say Anne had just given birth or was just about to give birth. And Winona and I were in the makeup trailer together. So now she's probably about 18. Mm-hmm. And she said, I-, I think it's just so cool that you're having a child. I'd love to be the godmother of your child. <laughs> and I said, Winona, you're it. So Winona Ryder is the godmother to our child, Robert, who just gave me a grandchild. Oh, my gosh. So we have come full circle. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yes. That's amazing. I love her. She's such a great actress. And and she's she's quite an amazing person. Mm. An absolutely amazing person. Well, isn't that that hilarious that not only is she— the godmother to your son, but she also plays the Gene Arthur character in the adaptation of this film that you love so much. That's wild. <laughs> I tell you, showbiz, the pool is small, but pool is deep. You know, it's just. That's wild. Yes. Amazing. And, and, and think, and think too, like if you look at Gene Arthur's role here and this, mm-hmm. And she was someone who was struggling as an actor, you know, her going from small part to small part. Oh, she's good in comedy. Oh, she's, you know, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. This movie, Mr. Deeds, made her an international star. Mm. She became huge. And think of the role she did right after that in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah. The same kind of role. Uh, and it is... If you want to talk about the role of the liberated woman, Mm. it is certainly she embodies everything. She's a person who made it on her own, uh, both of these parts, educated, uh, ambitious, uh, yet at the same time, love is important, Mm. home, hearth, family. I mean, it. It is, it is the woman who seeks to have it all, mm. and you know, which is always difficult. Yes, you know, because there's <laughs> only so many hours in the day. Exactly, and then there's no time for Facebook. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but uh, 
even back then in the in the mid 30s and early 40s you know the template of of finding you know the the story the character that represents the modern woman people were searching for that then and jean arthur was it mm. she was the representative of the modern woman hey i'll talk about something that's I thought was a little weird about the movie, and I, I watched it, and it made me think about it a lot. Not one person of color in the movie at all. None. Yeah. Not even the extras. The farm. Not even the damn farmers, and not right. even the people who work on the damn farm. It because it was like the. Norwegians and the Swedes, those people were the immigrants that were coming in, not the Hispanics. It wasn't like, you know, anything that had to do with inner city uh, black families or anything. Even in New York City, there was not one person of color, not one character, extra, anyone walking down the street that was any other race. And But white. And yet, and yet I, who sit here. Say, like, there's not one racist bone in that movie's body. Mm. You know, I look at that movie and I go like, and I think of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, in which Capret did have uh, black characters in it, and they were porters. They they carried mm. luggage, uh, except they were they were not fools. You know, they were not fools, and and the white people whose luggage they were carrying were fools. Right. So that was the tip of the hat he did in terms of black characters there, but not one person in the Senate or House of Representatives, Mr. Smith, is a person of color. Right. And again, I felt it is, you could look at it a lot of different ways. You could say, that's just the way movies were made back then. Mm. You know, that was the demographic they were shooting. Those are the people who went to the movies. That's right. the way we told our story. But it seems strange to me uh, watching it. Uh, and yet I don't feel it came from racism, any kind of racism, uh, systemic one way or another. I, 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 like I said, the, it was weird. It was weird to watch it with modern eyes. Yeah. But I, you have to watch it and you go like, okay. Yeah. You know, this, this, is, this is the way the film was made back then. Mm. And, and that, was, that was something that kind of surprised me and made me think about fairy tales. Mm. And, and the fairy tales mean something more Joseph Campbell, you know, the masks of God, the, the super sign impulse, that, fairy, that stories represent uh our own mythology as right. opposed to societal issues and it, it isn't the table where we discuss societal issues yeah unless that's the story we're telling right well and it is it is interesting like from a historical aspect right because you know if you've studied film history and you know hollywood history you kind of understand why there wouldn't be people of color in a 1936 film. But for modern eyes, it's like, well, why didn't they? You know, it's kind of a question of, you know, perspective in terms of if it were made now 
it would be completely different casted. It would be more diverse, you know, all those things, which is wonderful. But it is interesting that, you know, looking back on some of these older films, you start to kind of question the thought process there. And, and like you said, I don't think it was done, you know, intended with malice or anything like that. It was just kind of how the system was back then of, I mean, even, you know, Rita Hayworth was a person of color, but she had to change her whole image. And that's that's just kind of how it was, unfortunately. But it is interesting to kind of have that dialogue in your head. And, and we can talk about it now in a way that, you know, is, I think, sensitive to the current climate of things. But yeah, it's, yeah. it is interesting to think about in, in that way. Because the first step, the first step in populating the film with that is mm. you could decide, you know, you could make... Uh, a person of color, uh, Mr. Deeds character, or you can make that person of color Mr. Cedar character, mm. the corrupt devil figure. Right. You know, then you're in a whole other kettle of fish too. You know, like am I walking the plank with this of, of right. making this person look so bad? So it's growing pains. Mm. You know, and 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 the the film shows its age that way for sure. Mm. But it's still a magnificent fairy tale, a yeah. magnificent fairy tale that echoes and uh, and meant a lot to me then and, and it does now as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I got to thank you for for pulling this one out because I know there were others on the list that you were kind of thinking about. But I'm so glad you picked this because I know you had mentioned it a little bit last time we had spoken so, I mean, I want to say thank you because I had such a, a pleasure watching the film uh, yesterday and today, just to make sure I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like we've come to a pretty natural stopping point, but is there anything else that you want to, you know, say about the film or about what it means to you or anything like that? I just think it's one of those, there are a few movies that I go to when I have the flu, mm. not COVID, but the flu. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, <laughs> One of them is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Mm. I could watch this film, and it, and it always makes me feel better. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, also mm. Capra. That's on the flu list. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, surprise, also Capra. <laughs> but I'll also throw in Defending Your Life. Albert Brooks, Meryl mm. Streep, fantastic. Uh, that makes me feel good when I have the flu, too. So there are other... Good flu movies. <laughs> and of course, Queen's Gambit always can make yes. you feel good. That can always make you feel good if you have the flu or any anything that ails you. But you have to stay indoors for eight hours to watch it. But, mm. <laughs> well worth the trip. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for coming on the show. And we can chat Pleasure. a little bit after this. But it's always a joy to have you here. And this it was lovely because this time we've actually had picture with our with our audio uh, yes. conversation, which has been wonderful. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I was showed you my crap. Yes. <laughs> Your cool crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. I cannot say thank you enough. And of course, you're welcome back anytime to talk about any of those other films that you had mentioned. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. That's a, I'm, I threatened one for sure. And I may, I, I was, uh, <laughs> I may have mentioned uh, along the way I've become friends with Leonard Malton. And uh, here in the pandemic, Leonard and his wife Alice came over 
who were one of the first people who came over after we were vaccinated. We had dinner over here, and he told me some movie stories that were like amazing. <laughs> so it kind of you know makes me want to pass some of those stories on to to you through you through some of these classic films because Leonard you know turns me on to some classic films that I've never seen before. And then I see them and I go like, oh my gosh, how did I miss this one? <laughs> you know, so I love that. Yeah. So uh, we'll have to maybe go to some on Leonard's list. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. We'll set it up for sure. Okay. <laughs> Another huge, huge thank you to Stephen Toblowski for coming on the show and talking about his favorite film, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, 1936, Frank Capra, it was honestly such a joy to watch, and like I said on the show, I had only seen the Adam Sandler version, so it was fun to see this original spin on a tale that I already knew, and also to get more of a morality aspect, more of a you know, childlike understanding of, you know, money isn't everything feel, and 1936, I mean, it doesn't get more elegant than that, really. <laughs> And of course, it's always a joy to have Steven on the show. He always picks Chef's Kiss movies for me to sit down and watch. And of course, if you liked this episode, we have so many more episodes to watch. If you haven't listened to the other episodes where Steven is involved... You can, of course, check out his guest spot in season one, where he came on to talk about his role in Groundhog's Day. Or you can also check out in season two, where we talked about the best years of our life. Another really great conversation, of course, about a classic film. But we also have two seasons and a summer worth of content that you can get through if you haven't already. Which, if you have... I totally get it. I'm with you. So you need other film outlets, 100%. I am with you. I hear you. So if that's the case, you can go ahead and subscribe to the show, rate the show, review the show. It always helps us out a lot. And I love hearing from you guys. Additionally, you can follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast, where I am trying to get as much media content out there for you guys as I can. And I post updates there too about everything that we're doing, what, you know, what guest is coming on next, what movie we're talking about next. So make sure that you are subscribed to that so you are up to date on everything. We also have a TikTok account, which is at Scopophilia, the podcast, which of course you can follow along there for fun little tidbits and clips. And lastly, if you just want to show off your Scopophilia fanness, your love of the show, or you just want to advertise for us, uh, you can go ahead and do that because we have merch. If you didn't already know, we have t-shirts, we have hats, we have tote bags. I personally wear mine all the time. They are extremely comfortable and the bag is incredibly practical for going to the beach, going to the store, going to the Trader Joe's and the Aldi's and whatever grocery store you intend on going to today. And you can, of course, find those on our website, ncpodcasts.com slash scopophilia, or you can go on our Instagram bio and the link is there for your enjoyment. Before long, it'll be Christmas. I know it's hard to think about that because I have Halloween on the brain, 
But you can ask your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family for Scopophilia merch. And and since you're asking for that, they might be like, oh, what is this? And you can tell them all about us and we can keep the conversation going. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I'll see you all next Friday. Bye.